Also, this cat is being a bit much today. <laughs> I was like, like come on early. keep thinking, like, who else is there? Yeah, so it's a cat butt. <laughs> Tail swishing across the screen. Oh, speaking of cat butts. No, I'm kidding. Oh, no. He Just kidding. Who do we have on today, Chris? Oh, we have Eric Shattuck on today. Eric is postdoc at UT San Antonio right now. He got his doctorate at IU under Michael Mullenbein. He has gone from working in anthropological immunology lab to doing a postdoc in public health. So he sent us a, uh, an article that he did a year or two ago in AJPA. Uh, this is from 2015 called Human Sickness Behavior, Ultimate and Proximate Explanations. And he was also kind enough to, since this is to him a little dated, as we know, not everyone is automatically reading our papers the minute slash year slash decade they come out. So I don't think it's that dated. But he did send some slides from a talk he just gave at UNLV for their Darwinian Medicine Forum. So... Let's talk about sickness behavior, because I'm just now getting off a pretty nasty cold. Uh, what's your sickness behavior, Chris? Oh, I behave as though I'm not sick, and I take a lot of medications and plow through in delirium and infect everyone I come in contact with. What's yours, Kara? I have a mix. Um, my immediate go-to is I must consume SpaghettiOs. I don't know what it is, but SpaghettiOs are like the only food I can tolerate when I'm sick. It must be like a childhood comfort thing. Mm, definitely then, a gross food that I ate a lot as a child. No, that's the thing. And like, I loved it as a kid and it does provide comfort when I am sick as an adult. And then I think I will usually take a day to just implode on the couch and try to like rest. But then I immediately go and decide to do an incredibly difficult workout in the gym and mm. just make the sickness last longer than it really should. Yeah, that sounds about right. I So this isn't quite sickness, but maybe it qualifies. So I go to work anyway, but then I just basically don't function. So I mowed my entire lawn and raked everything over the weekend and did not wear a mask. And I have a lot of allergies. Mm -hmm. And then I ate a whole pie uh, after <laughs> Easter. Uh, this is apple pie, but the point was, is like, oh, and I ate a half a bag of the chocolates my wife got me for Easter. So <laughs> I had a sugar high at night. I couldn't get to sleep. And then I felt so awful yesterday that when I came in, the blanket and pillows I'd stolen from the lounge were still under my desk because I laid under there and took an hour long nap. Nice. Um, that's one manifestation of my sickness behavior. Another one, which is one I think I probably shouldn't share as much as I do uh, to my grad students. It's one of those like, oh, you think you've got it bad. Listen to my story kind of thing. <laughs> so the first semester of grad school, now granted, most of them cannot possibly live up to this standard slash, I don't really want to say it's a standard. <laughs> I had I had five-year-old triplets when I started grad school. And they all got, everybody in the house got an intestinal virus that first semester. One of my son's Bailey actually ended up in the hospital because the diarrhea was so bad he couldn't hold down fluids. Oh, man. So I was all sort of a mess. I remember sobbing, like just broke down at one point. I was so worried about him and couldn't do anything, right? Yeah. Now, that's not my sickness behavior, but of course, when you have kids losing that out of both ends, it ultimately trickles, no pun intended, into the, the parents. <laughs> 
So right around finals time, another one came through the house. And when the kids are sick, nobody wants to come over to help the parent who's staying home, which in this case was Loretta, was their mother, because they don't want to get sick. So then Loretta's sick. And then I'm trying to not go up to Albany because I had an hour and 40 minute commute to TA. And ultimately, I got sick also. It was finals. Fortunately, I had outlined the two take-home finals I had, and I had already written one of the essays. I had one more essay to write, but I couldn't get everyone to stop vomiting um, (laughs) until sometime after dark. Everyone finally stopped vomiting and fell asleep, at which point I started vomiting. This is rough. But I, I needed to finish that essay because it was due in hours. So I sat up, and since it had been outlined, I basically sat there with my outline and turned sentence fragments into whole sentences, adding the and a period or whatever, deleting the bullet, making it into a paragraph, nodding out, sleeping, waking up, vomiting, sitting back down, doing a bit more until I finished. And I think on that essay, I got a C. And on the other one, I got a B plus or an A minus and ultimately got a B on the final. And it was good enough. Lower expectations of yourself in yeah, that, that was, experience. That was the moral of the story. And usually I tell that story not to like show you need to push through everything, but to, to say like, sometimes you have to know when it's good enough and move on. Mm-hmm. Let's bring Eric Shattuck on so we can talk about what he discovered about gendered and cultural differences for sickness behavior. Hey, can Eric. you hear us? Yeah, I can. So... Chris and I were actually just discussing our sickness behaviors and what we do uh, when we get sick. What's your sickness behavior? Uh, it's funny you ask. Uh, when I was in Vegas and I gave that talk, the last question was a student asking if I ever worked through my illnesses, which I absolutely do. I think it's something we pick up in grad school, right? Hmm. No matter how sick we are, you know, we're still going to go to class. We're still going to you know, try to write, try to run analyses. <laughs> rather than staying home and just, you know, resting, relaxing, and and trying to recuperate faster. And it's funny, you know, if you, I joke about it a lot, but if you ask my wife, she'll tell you that I'm I'm the worst at being sick. (laughs) Like, oh my God, you you make such a big deal out of it, and you're fine, it's okay. (laughs) But it's man flu, right? I think it says something about the context of sickness, right? When we are in those contexts and when we feel comfortable and safe and we know that someone's going to take care of us, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll overreact. You know, we'll, we'll send out a stronger signal than if we were around complete strangers. Mm. That's a very good point. That's a yeah. Very good point. So I think that's, that's kind of the, uh, the long and short of how I act when I'm sick and I, I probably gave too much away, but you know. <laughs> it's not too much. I mean, I revealed that I basically just eat SpaghettiOs when I'm sick. So, I mean, we all have our own way of coping. Uh, but anyway, I guess we put the, the cart before the horse just a little bit. First, welcome and thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. And let's start off with your origin story of how you got into anthropology, what's your journey been, and why you decided to pursue it as a career. Okay, sure. I wish I had a more exciting origin story, I suppose, bit by a radioactive anthropologist or something like that. But I, I kind of got interested in anthropology when I was about 17 or 18, um, when I was looking around for a major in undergrad. I found that I was reading a lot of books that were kind of anthropology related or anthropology adjacent, I suppose. You have an example of one? Funnily enough, Ruth Benedict. 
honestly, I was thinking about it yesterday. I don't honestly remember how I f- came across her, but I think it was the Chrysanthemum and the Sword that I first read. But at any rate, yeah, so I, so I was reading Ruth Benedict and, and then, of course, through her, found Boaz and everybody. Uh, and then I was also reading books like um, one that I remember pretty strongly was uh, Ishmael by Daniel Quinn, mm. which, you know, not really anthropological, I suppose, but kind of anthropology adjacent and um, really kind of tackled or tried to tackle these kinds of big questions that, uh, that I think anthropologists are really interested in. You know, what does it kind of mean to be human? How do humans exist in the world? So, yeah, so I was at Georgia and I started taking uh, anthropology classes and trying to think back, the only real bioanth class that I remember very well was uh, primate behavior, basic primatology kind of thing. You were at University of Georgia? That's right. Yeah. UGA. So I thought originally that I was going to be a cultural anthropologist and, uh, you know, Georgia has a really great ecological environmental anthropology program. Mm -hmm. And so I was interested in things like water rights and, and, and whatnot, but found that I I took some time off before going after a master's and found that all of the books that I was reading and the, the kind of papers and books that I went back to from undergrad all kind of revolved around biological anthropology. Mm. particularly um, Why We Get Sick, uh, which I read in undergrad and then just kept coming back to over and over again, and then realized that, well, you know, maybe, maybe the cultural anthropology isn't quite for me since I'm feeling kind of drawn to these biological questions. Um, yeah, so that, that got me interested in, in uh, evolutionary medicine, which took me to, to Binghamton to work with Chris Reiber on the master's. And then that's kind of where I became interested in the effects of pathogens on human behavior. At first, I was interested in the, the kind of parasite manipulation or pathogen manipulation aspect of things. Let me interrupt you real quick and, and sort of unpack that a little bit. So is this like toxoplasmosis making cats uh, go mess around? Wait, what? make what rats go mess around? Question, Chris. What possible motivation could you have for asking about? I don't know. I don't know. Some, some, <laughs> some, something about cat vomit all over someone's house right before it came on. But or right the cat now. walking across the screen. <laughs> yeah. So the, the classic model in that is uh, the pathogen infecting rat brains, and then they go sort of taunt the cat and get themselves eaten. And is that the, is that the pathway? Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> yeah, felines are like the definitive host. And so when they get into rodents, uh, what they seem to do is affect uh, fear and essentially turn that down or turn that off. And so they won't respond. Uh, So the rodents who are infected don't seem to respond with uh, fear to cat urine smells and stuff like that. So like targets the amygdala or something, if I I remember correctly. Is that right? I think that's right. Yeah, it's honestly been a little while since I've uh, looked at that literature. Me too, but it's one of my favorite models. Oh, it's fantastic. It's awesome. And then there's, there's so much more as well with insects. Usually you see a lot of really cool stuff. Mm. The, what is it? There's a, a parasite that induces ants to uh, mm. crawl to the top of a grass stalk and then basically hang on. Uh, and then that makes them more vulnerable to being swallowed by uh, grazing ruminants, cows. It's like the zombie ant thing. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So uh, cool. <laughs> we tried to do that in humans with this flu back and look to see whether or not people who had received the flu, since flu spread from person to person, people had received the flu vaccine were any more pro-social, which is the exact opposite of sickness behavior, right? 
but we looked to see if they were more pro-social uh, after receiving the flu vaccine, found out that they indeed were, uh, were around larger groups of people, spend more time in interactions with individuals and, and whatnot. But this was all uh, recall data. There was no biological samples or anything else like that. So we didn't track you know, whether there were changes in inflammatory markers or hormones or something like that that might induce some of these changes. I got interested in, in the mechanistic side of things, and that's what drew me to Michael Muhlenbein, who was then at IU, his work on uh, testosterone and immune function and then hormones and behavior more generally. So this was, in, this was at Binghamton. Uh, we recruited, I think, like 20, 30 individuals um, who had received the flu vaccine. It was the injected shot. We basically got data at baseline two or three days after that and then a follow-up about four weeks later. And we made sure that they were not students because students do weird stuff no matter what. Uh, so we wanted to find people who, you know, if we saw some big changes, we could be relatively sure that, that this was kind of a significant thing. The uh, study period included weekends, so we were able to control for any, any kind of increased social behavior due to going out more on the weekends and stuff like that. And then they essentially were around larger groups of people. Um, there weren't really changes in the number of social events that they went to, but when they did go to them, they were at, they were with larger people. And then they, oh, and actually I'm looking at it now. Uh, so I guess the duration of their social encounters actually decreased uh, from pre to post. Mm. Do you find that surprising or is that what you expected? We expected and we, we hoped to find that they were being around more people or increasing their social contacts. We saw a little bit of that in terms of their being around larger groups of people. The decrease in time uh, spent socializing, you know, with the theory that we were approaching it from, would probably also be uh, an unexpected finding, right? The idea being that if you're infected with the flu, the flu is using you to transmit itself, you should probably be around more people for longer. Uh, and closer even, right? Um, we made sure, by the way, that this was face-to-face -face and not just over the phone and stuff like that. Yeah. But again, you know, what we're not really able to tease out with those data is whether or not um, this is a placebo effect, for instance. They just got the flu vaccine. Uh, you know, they might have felt more comfortable in going out and being around people. Right? Mm -hmm. Rather than it actually being the direct effect of the pathogen itself. And in addition, of course, you know, the pathogen that's involved or, or the strain or, or whatever you want to say that's involved in the vaccine uh, is dead or it's only in pieces mm -hmm. cause a uh, immune reaction and induce immunity, of course. But whether or not if the flu vaccine or sorry, if the flu virus had an actual mechanistic way of influencing human behavior, whether or not that gene, that component is included in the vaccine, of course, mm -hmm. something. Um, also, just to clear things up, because in that review paper, you talk about proximate versus ultimate causes of sickness behavior. And I was wondering if you could unpack the differences between those two and maybe examples of each for people who might not be familiar with this kind of thing. Sure. Um, so proximate and ultimate, of course, goes back to Tinbergen, right? What are, the, what are the ultimate evolutionary origins of this behavior? And then what are the more proximate causes of sickness behavior. Uh, so the argument really is that the ultimate cause of sickness behavior is to reprioritize energy expenditure in the host, whether that's a non-human animal or a human or whatever. 
and, and it's it's really remarkable how conservative it seems to be. Um, mm. Bees, if you if you induce inflammation in honeybees, they decrease their social behavior, they decrease their movement, decrease. Do they start eating spaghettios as well? <laughs> uh, no. At any rate, so yeah, so honeybees do it, ants do it, uh, pigs, chickens, rodents, monkeys, apes. We all have sickness behavior. Uh, so it's evolutionarily conserved. The patterns of behavioral changes and changes in mood really seem to be the same throughout. Again, you know, decreased food intake, decreased activity, decreased social behavior. Uh, so the original argument is that this serves to reprioritize energy expenditure. Animals and humans stop doing things like trying to mate or defending their territories and stuff like that. They stop doing things like uh, offspring care and just invest that time and that energy into mounting, mounting an effective immune response. Immune responses are tremendously energetically costly, right? As, as we know from a lot of people's work with Schwar and Shimane and people like that. Uh, more recently, there's an argument that sickness behavior might also be involved with uh, inclusive fitness. There being, of course, that an animal, again, or human, who is keeping to themselves and staying away from other people uh, is less likely to transmit that pathogen. Mm. They're moving around less, which means there's less of a likelihood of shedding the virus or parasite or bacteria or whatever uh, in the environment. And then because sickness behavior induces very noticeable behavioral changes, you're a cat mom, Cara, so you probably know, right? When your cat starts acting a little bit weird, uh, less energetic and so on, they're probably sick, right? Yeah, sick. and it's often too late with cats. Right. All over your house. No, that's just typical for that cat. He's not super smart. He doesn't know how to handle himself, but... <laughs> Well, so I have two cats, and so we, we see the same things. My wife and I, you know, we, we, we can tell when they're feeling under the weather because they don't act like they normally do. They keep to themselves. They don't come up looking for pets and back scratches and stuff like that. And so because sickness behavior results in these kinds of big behavioral changes that are noticeable, and not only noticeable to us, but arguably noticeable to con specifics as well, that serves as a signal of, you know, hey, I'm, I'm sick. and you should probably stay away from it. So those are the two main kind of evolutionary arguments for this, that it serves to help redirect energy and possibly there's a role for inclusive fitness in it. Um, as far as the more ultimate mechanism, uh, sorry, proximate mechanisms, you know, these are things like uh, increases in cytokine levels, pro-inflammatory cytokine levels. That's been linked really strongly with uh, instigating these behavioral changes one interesting question uh, that I, I kind of posed in this review paper and that I'd, I'd love to follow up on is whether or not any changes in hormone levels underlie some of these behavioral changes. Mm. Um, there's a paper in uh, songbirds, I forget which species off the top of my head, but in male uh, songbirds, I think it's like a white crown sparrow or something. In these birds, if you implant testosterone in the male birds, and then induce inflammation, uh, essentially no sickness behavior occurs because the testosterone levels in these males are at such a high level that they're essentially fooled into thinking that they're engaged in male-male competition over territory or over uh, females. And in that case, you know, the inflammatory stimulus doesn't matter. And this high level of testosterone essentially shuts off this, um, this behavioral change. 
So whether or not, you know, these cytokines uh, that are involved in inflammation then affect the brain, which then affects, you know, hormone levels, which then leads to behavioral changes, um, I think is still an open question. That's so interesting. So, you know, we, we skipped the rest of your, your origin story because you went from Binghamton to work with, with Michael. Michael Mullenbein, um, for those listening, was at IU and then San Antonio and is now the chair at Baylor, but is a anthropological immunologist. So you, I'm guessing you, you went there to better understand these immune mechanisms, yes? Absolutely, yeah, exactly. And then how the how the immune mechanisms and inflammation affected the hormone levels. Gotcha. Yeah. And now you're you're doing a postdoc in public health. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Kind of a jack of all trades, it seems like. Uh, yeah. So currently, I'm with the Institute for Health Disparities Research uh, here at UTSA, University of Texas at San Antonio. Uh, and it's a it's an interesting kind of position in that. We're trying to pursue some of these questions uh, from a little bit more of a public health angle, but we're also, the Institute itself is also involved in, you know, some of these kind of classic public health interventions, you know, so uh, for instance, I've been writing a couple, working on a couple R21s, looking at, you know, things like sleep and immune function and, and acculturation and telomere length with Dan Eisenberg. We just had a R21 submitted to look at that, you know, so still these kinds of anthropological questions that involve um, you know, inflammation and immune function and things like that. And then I've been writing grants and working on grants that are, that are looking at things like intervening in um, alcohol abuse in middle school students here in Texas. Just complete shift, you know, uh, grant writing style and, and question research. So it's an interesting position. So where do you see yourself going in terms of these, these very directions? What's your, what's your interest um, for your next step? I assume since it's a postdoc, you're, well, I know you're on the market, so I, I, but I don't know how broadly you are on the market. Are you interested in public health and or research jobs? What's, what's the horizon look like for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm definitely interested in, in research um, and continuing to ask these kinds of questions. Uh, I think, you know, where exactly I, I land, right, whether that's an anthropology department or, or public health or something like that, I think is a little bit open kind of open to the vagaries of the job market. I think there's a lot of potential for, you know, these kind of evolutionary questions and, and questions about trade-off and in, in investment and growth and development versus uh, somatic maintenance and things like that. I think that's a great angle that could be brought to public health that you don't really see just yet, at least not broadly. I think some of the questions that you, so you sent us some slides that you presented on at UNLV, is that right? For their evolutionary medicine series? Uh, it was just for their uh, departmental colloquia. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like you're integrating the sickness behavior with some of the public health stuff and looking at, I, I, I saw some differences for Hispanic and African-American participants in terms of factors called stoic endurance and taciturn. I wonder if you could unpack some of that stuff for us. Yeah, sure, sure. And I got to apologize. Um, I would have loved to have sent you a little write-up on the results and, and kind of what it all means. I, I realized I just gave you these slides with you know very little context. So my apologies there. Um, it's been a hectic uh, last couple of weeks. Uh, so yeah, so the slides that I uh, sent you guys and that, that I presented at Las Vegas, they're from a survey that we did just recently, uh, online survey. 
of about 1,300 individuals, 1,260, all in the U.S., all adults between the ages of 18 to 55. And we were interested in, or I was interested in, how sickness behavior might vary between groups and within groups, right? So there's a lot of literature out there suggesting that how we conceive of symptoms and how we deal with them is shaped a lot by things like gender role or machismo in the case of, of Hispanics and Latinos. Um, stoicism is another big one. Collectivism versus individualism. There's a, a big literature there uh, looking at between um, uh, East Asian countries and Western countries, right? So this very kind of big, broad differences in, in symptom reporting and uh, help seeking and, and things like that. So what I was interested in seeing is whether or not we could see some of that, you know, within these, these kind of smaller groups here in the U.S., so we had relatively equal numbers of African-Americans, Hispanics, and whites, uh, equal numbers of men and women in each of those ethnic uh, groups. And so basically, uh, the slides that I sent, you know, were the results of a regression model looking at how these different sort of forms and personality factors shaped uh, recalled sickness behavior. In this case, uh, it's using a validated survey. It's called the Sickness Q. That was developed uh, over in Sweden by some, some people that I know and I'm hoping to, to work with uh, down the road a little bit. And it's been validated against experimental sickness behavior. So they do a lot where they take people and they bring them into their lab. They induce inflammation and then see how immune markers and inflammatory markers change, how behavior and mood changes. So the surveys, the sickness cues have been validated against that. But it's not really practical to recruit close to 1,300 individuals who are all sick at the same time. So in this case, it was all self-report, all recalled sickness behavior. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, think back to the last time you were sick, how did you respond? That's the kind of data that we had. Crawled under my desk right. and took a nap. SpaghettiOs. Working out too hard, too fast, because that's smart, too. Right. <laughs> that was, of course, an answer on the sickness cue, of course, right? SpaghettiOs sleeping under the desk. Yeah, we're going we're gonna, to, I'll talk to him. We're going to add in a, a SpaghettiOs question. <laughs> you um, might be able to get funding from Campbell's now, <laughs> or Chef Boyardee. Wait, Chef Boyardee. <laughs> Chef Boyardee Institute of Sickness Behavior Research. <laughs> I love it. So basically, stoic endurance, uh, in this case, is literally endurance of pain and illness. That's the question, right? So when it says stoic endurance, that's just, you know, I, I believe that I push through pain. I push through illness. Taciturn, in this case, is uh, the degree to which you do not share your emotions with others, right? So being mm. kind of emotionally reserved and withdrawn. And in the data, I mean, what we're seeing really in these slides is that stoic endurance is hugely associated with increased sickness behavior across a lot of these different groups. Uh, So, for instance, in men, it's very strongly associated with increased sickness behavior across income quartiles and then in Caucasians, interestingly enough but in no other uh, ethnic group. It's a really interesting finding. I mean, in the literature, stoicism, especially you would think, you know, pushing through pain and illness, you should probably be reporting less sickness behavior, reporting fewer symptoms because, oh, you know, I, I don't feel that bad. I'm, I'm only a one on this. I'm only a one on the, the SpaghettiO scale. <laughs> but here what we're seeing is that people who uh, show higher stoicism are, are higher on sickness behavior. So I've been thinking about how to, and you know, these are really preliminary data. We finished analysis, you know, just before the meetings, really, the AAPA meetings. 
excuse me, AABA almost. I got it used to. Oh, yeah, that's right. ABBA. Uh, so what I think this is saying is that, well, it could be a couple things. It could be that people who are more stoic are actually biased to reporting more sickness behavior because they may, they may see themselves as being able to take it, right? You know, oh, yeah, no, I, every time I'm sick, I'm on death's door. I'm always a 10 out of 10 on these scales. I feel terrible, but, but, you know, look at me, I can continue to do my normal activities and, and, you know, it's, it's not a problem. I'm not gonna let it hold me back. And if that's the case, then I wonder whether or not stoicism could kind of be this costly signal in a way, right? If it's operating to where people are um, using it as, uh, as a way to show off, right? They show, they go to work, they show off to their bosses, you know, yeah, I'm sick boss, but here I am, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing what you need me to do and <laughs> don't forget me when it's time for raises sacrifices I'm making that kind of mentality so that yeah that's kind of how I've been thinking about this this stoicism result because uh, you're, you're right Chris I mean it shows up across all these different groups I think I epitomize Eric's hypothesis of signaling behavior and the question is is it because I study sick signaling behavior also that I'm trying to be the emblem of my own research model kind of thing where your behavior worsens your symptoms. Oh, sort of like going and working out? No, exactly. But I also don't eat an entire pie or half a bag of chocolate. Anyway, let's do the fun question. So Eric, you do lots and lots of work and it's all really cool. We also like to know what people do for fun. So hobbies, what are you watching, listening, reading, those kinds of fun things? Yeah, I was thinking about that too. And, and I, God, I wish I had more interesting things to say. Um, <laughs> Don't apologize for liking your work. It's okay. So when I was when I was a bit younger, an undergrad, in fact, um, I was uh, big into into music and playing. Uh, and it's been a little bit harder uh, now that we've been moving so much and you know living in apartments and stuff like that. My drum kit is unfortunately packed away in the closet. Uh, I do still have my practice pad and, and my sticks and everything, so I, I try to get on there and, and practice my fundamentals when I can. What kind of music did you play? Mostly rock. So let's see. So I was in a couple bands. I was in one with a bunch of anthropology grad students at Georgia. Uh, it was a sort of boozy kind of blues rock, a lot of cover songs, just really an excuse for us to get together and jam. This morning on CNN, they've been interviewing Democratic candidates and asking them what they listen to and what would be, what two songs would be on their mixtape for their conven the convention. <laughs> So what, what would be on your mixtape right now? That's a tough question. I don't think I could answer that either. Mine would be Sharon by the Frighteners. The song is so effing good. I'm going to go listen to it in just a second again for the 700th time. So I go through moods. I like to listen to a lot of different music. Everybody says that, of course, but I swear for me it's true. <laughs> two songs. Two songs. God bless. All right. Oh, you put me on the spot now. I can't think of any. Hold up. Kara, what's on your mixtape right now? I've got one song. So I just recently discovered a band called Wood Kid. It's one word, but Wood Kid. And the guy who is the lead singer, like it seems like what actually makes him money, he's also a music video choreographer for like Lady Gaga and big name people. But it turns out he's an incredibly talented, I have to say composer. Because the songs, there's like this massive composition of instrumental work going on in the background that's really impressive. Uh, and my favorite one right now is Run Boy Run. Hmm. Look it up. It's good stuff. And the music video is also fantastic because that's also his strength. All right. <laughs> I was going back through. I'm, I'm looking at what I've been listening to recently on my phone here. 
I've got a few. Bandcamp has been my huge friend lately because I discover so much good music that way. Uh, and then also through YouTube. But a band that I came across recently and had a chance to see in Santa, uh, sorry, in Austin recently, is this band uh, Dead Sarah. Hmm. They're uh, female fronted, female guitarist, female lead singer and, and, and front woman uh, with, she's just got an amazing voice. She's got that, that great grit to it like a mm. kind of Melissa Etheridge, but they, they take a very uh, good kind of grunge approach. Mm. I hear a lot of U2 in there as well on some of their slower ones. They have a song called uh, The Weatherman that it hits hard, man. It's hard rock, it's anthemic, it's awesome. Mm. Um, so that's, that's one I've been jamming out to lately. Uh, they've got, I think, three albums, two or three albums out now. They're definitely worth listening to. And then if you ever have a chance to see them live, they put on a hell of a show. Mm. So prog rock and metal have always kind of been my thing. Very much into kind of progressive metal and things like that. Bands that I've been listening to lately along that line, there's a band called The Ocean. Uh, they're out of Europe. Of course. Uh, yeah, right. They've got some <laughs> tremendously layered music. Just the, you sit, they're, they're a headphones band. You sit there, you listen to it, you can just pick apart the differences in rhythms and instrumentation. So they've got... I must say, they, got, they have long song titles, but any of their albums are really good. And they name their albums, they've got this thing where they're starting to name their albums after geologic uh, time frames. So the one they just came Phanerozoic. Uh, and they're using, you know, the Cambrian explosion as a metaphor for current human life and everything. So it's, it's great stuff. Sounds like good stuff to bring in when, I, when we have our geology section in the Evolution for Everyone class I, I teach. Because the students love it when I play songs. Always. Uh, so Eric, I know you're active on Twitter to some degree. So what's your handle or how can people learn more about you or get a hold of you? Sure. So the handle is at Eric uh, underscore Shattuck, if I, if I remember that right. <laughs> uh, and then so it's S-H-A-T-T-U-C-K. Uh, and I, I try to be active on there, um, try to announce whenever I've done something worth announcing and, and whatnot. <laughs> so I may not be the most active person in terms of posting a lot and whatnot, but I'm always happy to, to be retweeting and, and promoting other people's. Uh, you're one of those, those lurkers who's reading everything and, and knows what's going on. We forget you're out there, aren't you? That's right. That's right. I got my eye on you. Gary, <laughs> you're on Twitter, aren't you? I am on Twitter. I'm not the most active either. I, you know, maybe once or twice a week. Uh, and I'm at Kara Akabak. I am not active either. I've only tweeted like 10 times in the last minute. We've been talking. <laughs> I'm at Chris underscore L-Y. And this has been the Sausage of Science. Carrie, I see you have words coming out of your mouth. almost. I do, because I want to thank Eric so much for coming on and chatting with us today. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, well, thanks very much to you guys. It's been a pleasure to be on. Uh, thanks for your interest in my work. It's really awesome. Uh, this has been the Sausage of Science. Thank you all for listening. Make sure you like us and share this podcast with friends and family. Give us five stars, no less. No less. All five. <laughs> all right, bye, everybody. Talk to you in two weeks. Thanks, Eric. All right, thank you, guys. Thanks, Eric. Have a good one.